Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Stephen, and I'm speaking with Professor Daryl Lee of the Department of Anthropology and the School of Law. Professor Lee's research focuses on the intersection of war, law, migration, empire, and race, with a focus on trans-regional linkages between the Middle East, South Asia, and the Balkans. He's written extensively on those topics, and his first book, The Universal Enemy, Jihad, Empire, and the Challenge of Solidarity, was published by the Stanford University Press in 2020. He is here today to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome, Professor Lee. It is a pleasure to have you on the course. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell us, you know, what is your current position and how would you describe what you do to a lay person? Well, I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Chicago. I'm also an associate member of the law school because I'm trained as both an anthropologist and an attorney. I'm working on a number of different research projects right now, but broadly speaking, I'm interested in the relationship between migration, violence, and empire with a focus on the Middle East and connections between the Middle East and other regions. So my first book is about transnational jihad mobilizations. It's called The Universal Enemy, Jihad, Empire, and the Challenge of Solidarity. I'm also interested in human rights issues and captivity practices in the context of the war on terror. A lot of that arises from my legal experience, including representing people held captive by the U.S. government at Guantanamo Bay. Um, and I'm also developing a project on mercenaries and military contractors in the Gulf region and sort of migrant military work across the Indian Ocean. That's fascinating. And there is a whole lot to get to there. You referenced, obviously, that you are a professor of anthropology, but also mentioned some legal experience. So could you just take us through your path real quick, like starting in college and ending, obviously, where you are now? What, what positions have you held? What institutions have you been a part of? Oh, well, I finished college at Harvard in 2001. I worked mostly in the sort of human rights NGO sector for a few years before starting grad school. I completed um, my PhD from Harvard in anthropology and Middle Eastern studies concurrently with my law degree from Yale Law School. And I'm an attorney licensed in Illinois and New York. Going back a little bit, what did you think, you know, maybe like, high school or even middle school you, what did you think you would do? What did you want to do? And were there any signs at that time that you would end up in this field? Oh my God. So this requires unearthing all sorts of repressed memories. Um, <laughs> my, my biographical background is pretty typical for what are sometimes called the children of the hard seller generation, right? And that refers to a particular immigration law that kind of opened the doors to large-scale migration, especially of professionals from East Asia to the United States. Um, so my parents are Chinese, but uh, grew up in Taiwan because their families left China in the aftermath of the Communist Revolution. They met in the United States while studying. So I was born in the U.S. I grew up in a predominantly white middle-class suburb. So this is a, a biographical background that is, it's not atypical, I would say, for middle-class Asian Americans of my generation who went on to, to various pathways in higher education. Personally, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a journalist. 
I wanted to be a foreign correspondent in particular because I was a child of the 1990s. I came of age kind of politically and my awareness of the world was largely developed through an interest with political crises and wars in other parts of the world, especially in the Balkans and in Central Africa. And I came to realize later on that that was also symptomatic of this kind of post-Cold War moment. So this was a time when America was kind of on a high in terms of its hegemony in the world, right? It had vanquished the Soviet Union and it coincided with a whole series of 50th anniversary commemorations and mythologizations of, the, of World War II and the Holocaust, right? So the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum also opens in 1993. The idea of the Holocaust as kind of the, the paradigm for all sorts of mass atrocity also becomes really hegemonic at this time. So it's kind of this interesting historical moment where America's self-image in the world and its justification for having this kind of unchecked military supremacy begins to be justified in terms of stopping and preventing mass atrocities, right? So there's this idea or myth, if you will, that the U.S. prevented or not prevented, that the U.S. put an end to the greatest atrocity in mankind and that that was a legacy that the U.S. needed to live up to in saving benighted and victimized populations around the world. Mm -hmm. And for myself as an Asian American immigrant raised in a predominantly white context, I think my own kind of assimilation into that sort of American lifestyle and to questions of sort of American acceptance and whiteness and so on was also, you know, for, for someone like me who was trying to essentially become American and become accepted, but also kind of resenting that at some level, you know, with my own fair share of like encountering racism and so on growing up, that I think there was something that was deeply appealing about the kind of humanitarian mission, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. That it could be a better version of America and one that I could find, that I could be more at peace in trying to join and to become part of. I mean, I still had enough of a kind of baseline liberal sensitivity that mm -hmm. I, I was more interested in kind of the UN route than the US. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, you know, I left a lot of these thoughts behind as I grew older, but I think that was kind of the initial engine that was informing my notions of career at that early stage. So uh, it's interesting. It sounds like you were, you know, pulled in a couple of different directions and you talk about it initially being, I guess, sort of taken in and, and interested in this idea of the U.S. the defenders of human rights. Is, is that sort of what led you into the NGO legal world or what led to you, I guess, going to law school? When I was in college, I did an internship with a local human rights organization in India, and I wrote my undergraduate thesis about the Rwandan genocide, and I did field work in Rwanda for a few months. And in my senior year of college, there was the outbreak of the Intifada, or uprising, in Palestine. Hmm. And that um, set me on a path to working for a local human rights organization in the Gaza Strip in Palestine. And that also was the beginning of my disenchantment with the kind of humanitarian sort of do-gooder narrative yeah. that I had been raised with. Because that was the first time when the kinds of reactions from people in my social and professional worlds that I had to encounter with were different. Before, you know, the thing that I had to worry about basically was apathy, like how can we get people to care about what's happening in country X, Y, or Z? But this was the first time where people in my social and political world expressed hostility to basic human rights, mm. because the issue of Palestine is one where, let's just say, um, those who have power and those who are committing human rights abuses have a lot of fans. 
in in the US and especially in elite academic spaces. So that was a bit jarring because I think when you're an immigrant kid, you 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 know, you're you're sort of trained to be a people pleaser, to get the gold star, to try to jump through all the hoops of the meritocracy. And that was at least for me the first time where I had to really learn to think a little bit more critically and also to think about things like political choices in one's life and how that affects how that can affect you in, mm-hmm. in so many different ways. So that that year that I spent in Palestine was very formative for me on many levels. And law, of course, litigation was one of the tools that um, was employed by the organization I was working with. So this was a Palestinian organization, but they litigated cases in the Israeli courts on occasion, especially to stop house demolitions by the Israeli military in the Gaza Strip. So I became interested in in law as a tool and one potential tool in struggling for various issues. But to be really honest, I think there is also just thinking back to this baseline meritocratic impulse. I think there's just this basic sense that like, if you thought of yourself as a smart and ambitious person um, in an Ivy League or similar context, going to law school is kind of just like a thing that's quasi expected of you. It's like the next step. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In a way. Right. And there's a lot of things that are just really deeply problematic about it. But I think to a certain extent, my thinking was just sort of like, well, this is a credential that one needs to advance in the world and to be taken you know, seriously in various places. And you know, I, I don't think one should overemphasize the thoughtfulness and intentionality with which those types of decisions get made. <laughs> this is a system that is really channeling us and just jump through the next hoop. And also thinking about my own like family background, you know, because I wasn't pursuing the most typical kind of career paths, I think in a way the unspoken bargain in my family was that pursuing these kinds of like establishment merit badges was a way of upholding certain ideas of like respectability while also kind of doing what I wanted. Right. So when all of the the parents get together, right. And sort of talk about what their kids are doing as doctors and lawyers, et cetera. Okay. You know, I'm like, there was, there was a story, there was a cover story that could be told while I would continue to pursue the things that were, that were interesting to me. Um, And one of my other jobs after college was that I worked for Human Rights Watch as a fellow for a year. Mm -hmm. And this was in the very early years of the war on terror. So I was in Gaza on 9-11. And I was also there when the first captives were being brought to Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that these people who were deemed kind of the, the most dangerous people in the world, that there really wasn't any kind of coherent narrative about them. There was no story that added up. Like we had the government story that they were evil and crazy and pathological. Because we're free. Yeah, 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 all that stuff, right? But the counter narrative was not really robust. It was just sort of like, well, it doesn't matter what they did. They shouldn't be tortured, which of course I completely agree with, but there wasn't a story. There wasn't a way of making sense of why these people were there, right? Because a lot of these people were migrants from other predominantly Muslim societies in Afghanistan. And without making sense of that history of migration, you don't have a strong alternative to the government narrative, which is basically, if you have an Arab who's in Afghanistan, he's really out of place. And the only reason why he would be there is that he's like a terrorist, mm-hmm. right? So I I was interested in challenging this sort of um, sensibility of Muslims out of place that I felt was animating a lot of the decisions in the U.S. forever war policies. And I, 
I came to realize that, yeah, continuing to read about this and, and looking into this, that it would be a very, very large research project. And it appealed to the side of my personality that was interested in pursuing a scholarly career. Um, so I decided to apply to PhD programs and law schools. I, so I applied at the same time and I, you know, the results came back, you know, as they did. And I decided to defer law school for two years so that I could complete the coursework in the PhD first. And then I would shift to law school while continuing to develop my dissertation project and then eventually complete the PhD as well. Interesting. So I guess, could you explain a little bit about like the decision? Was there a moment or a particular thing that made you decide that I I really do want to pursue this academic interest, even though I have this other maybe path (laughs) charted out or or potential path? And uh, why did that end up being anthropology? It seems like there are maybe a number of fields that you could have approached this problem through. (laughs) Why did you choose this one? Yeah. So this kind of gets back to my earlier interest in journalism, which fell away in college for a number of reasons. But one of them was that through anthropology, I think I just came to appreciate the importance of understanding what other people in the world think and to really value those perspectives and to use those perspectives as a starting point for for reimagining the world. That's a pretty cliche story that many anthropologists tell about their own evolution, but it is you know, I think it has the additional virtue of not being untrue. And I tend to think of anthropology as one of those fields that like, I don't think anyone really grows up thinking they're going to be an anthropologist. (laughs) Anthropology, in my view, is largely composed of refugees from other fields, people who thought they would do something else and then got disillusioned for one reason or another. And that was the case for me as well. Like I was thinking I would probably do political science or something like that. But given the sort of, um, heavily kind of quantitative turn that that discipline had taken, at least by the 1990s and, and kind of the devaluation of, um, you know, what is dismissively called area knowledge. I, I felt like, you know, that wasn't really a good fit for me. So, yeah, so I think that was how things kind of got started. But even when I was applying to grad school, I applied to anthropology programs, but other disciplines as well. And I, I was actually accepted into Yale's political science PhD program. I went to the admitted students weekend and honestly was just so turned off by some of the other people that I met that I didn't turn around and never looked back. And so that was sort of how I ended up with anthropology. But, you know, for me, it was the feeling that other pathways might've been more hostile and more difficult, but not so much a kind of love of or attraction to the field itself. Because of course, as as many people are aware, anthropology's own disciplinary history and disciplinary present is inextricably tied up with, you know, all sorts of pretty terrible things. I, th- I think I came to it a bit instrumentally, which, you know, may or may not be a good thing to be saying on a podcast. Um, but at least that's, you know, that's how it happened. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty. I-, I imagine that when some people apply to grad school, they have a very idealized vision of their field that may or may not correspond with reality. I think it makes a lot of sense to say, I wanted to do this. And then this was the path that opened up. <laughs> I mean, just generally in terms of life advice, I do think having low expectations is not a bad thing (laughs) in general. I think that's really shielded me from a lot of potential disappointment or just being down. I think if you just go in having an understanding of how these institutions work, in fact, that was probably the most valuable lesson I learned from being an undergraduate at Harvard, which is that there were a lot of people there who, of course, were like total idiots. And (laughs) that's true of any institution. But I think it was the... um, 
it was the demystification that was immensely useful. Like, of course, there were lots of brilliant people there as in any other place. There were lots of resources. I'm not denying the the inequities that exist in the education system. But I think just that for me personally, the educational curriculum there was like, I mean, it's not their priority, right? Because it's primarily a branding and networking institution. And I think just learning that and learning to discern reputation from reality and rolling with that um, was was important for my own kind of development. And yeah, like I said, low expectations, very important. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good advice. And so uh, talking about these fields, can you tell us a little bit about what you're researching now and just what is exciting or really like interesting to you to pursue? Right now I'm working on a book, which is a sort of companion to my first book. And I'm really trying to revisit and re-theorize a lot of the debates around captivity in the war on terror. So in the 2000s, Guantanamo in particular was a kind of major topic of, of national debate in the United States, as well as U.S. torture practices and the transport of prisoners to secret sort of black site prisons and so on. Mm. A lot of that kind of faded into the background during the Obama administration because of a, of a focus instead on, on drone killings, right? Mm. And I've always been very skeptical of the narrative that um, first, the U.S. imprisoned and tortured people, and then it sort of shifted to killing them by remote control. And the reason why I'm skeptical of that is that if you know anything about the way that the United States exercises hegemony in the world, you know that they prefer that the dirty work be done by other countries, right? By countries that are supposed to be independent and sovereign and standing on their own two feet, but countries that we all know are immensely dependent on and vulnerable to the pressures of the United States. So basically, you know, most of the imprisonment and torture and dirty work of the war on terror, as was the case during the Cold War, is done by client states of the U.S. And in my own research, I followed how um, people have been taken captive in part in countries all around the world at the behest of the United States, but formally under the responsibility of these other countries. Hmm. And once you understand that carceral logic to the war on terror, you can step back and see that the U.S. never stopped interrogating and capturing and torturing people, right? It simply redistributed the responsibility in ways that are less visible. So the book is really trying to drive that point home and to say, look, all of the focus that we had on the prisons that were directly run by the United States and all the focus that we had on on prisoners who, for that reason, were able to take their case to courts in the United States, that's really just the tip of the iceberg, right? Because if you're being warehoused in a prison, I don't know, in Jordan or Morocco, you can't file a petition for habeas in a U.S. court. It may be that the CIA told the Moroccans to arrest you, that the CIA is sending them the questions to ask while they're torturing you, and the CIA is ultimately deciding when and whether you will be released. But that's not enough of a direct tie of control to trigger jurisdiction in American courts. And courts are often how we know about these stories, right? Whether through journalists or human rights organizations or whatever. So again, that's just a, that understanding that that indirect logic of control is at work is, I think, crucial to, to getting a handle on the war on terror. There are other large questions that I'm trying to get at here. I think there are a lot of questions about um, racialization and Islam that have been widely discussed over the past few decades around Islamophobia and so on that I think there still needs to be a lot of work on. I think the question of how and when 
the U.S. government racializes Muslims is is actually quite complex and shifts a lot across different geographies. And that's something else that the book is looking into. And finally, what I would like to do is really to address a lot of the debates around abolition of prisons that have gotten a lot more airtime in the past few years. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to connect those questions to sort of broader issues in terms of American empire and hegemony in the world. And what are the lessons of abolitionism that can be brought to bear in thinking about how the U.S. exercises power in other places, and also how studying that those exercises of power abroad can also come back and maybe be helpful in some of the conversations around abolition inside the United States as well. So those are some of the broader kinds of themes and ambitions around around this work. That's really interesting. And just to editorialize, you know, you hear about Guantanamo as a U.S. citizen, occasionally it comes up and it sounds like this dirty little secret. It's interesting to hear you present for our consideration that that's actually the, that's the most publicized version of this, that that's one of the most accountable versions of a, a larger and very unaccountable system, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah, yeah, that's totally right. I mean, what's basically the, the Guantanamo is, is, it stands out because it's one of the places, it was set up very shortly after 9-11 where I think it was important to the United States government to show its own population and to show the rest of the world that they were basically the baddest dudes on the block, Yeah. right? So it was a show of force and, and an attempt to intimidate and, and terrify others. Then, of course, it turned into the symbol of excess and human rights abuse and became a publicity liability. But this desire to, to really kind of globally show off this use of force, that's the aberration. 99% of the time, the US is happy to just have this dirty work be done, you know, kind of out of sight and out of mind. And one of the ironies is that under the Obama administration, the Republicans passed a law essentially saying that anytime someone is going to be released from Guantanamo, Congress has to be notified in advance, which of course gives anyone in Congress the opportunity to kind of grandstand and try to derail a release. So even from the point of view of kind of the national security bureaucrats, Guantanamo is kind of a pain in the neck, right? Because anytime you put someone there, the courts might get involved. And if you want to take someone out of there, Congress might get involved. It's much easier just to have these sort of makeshift prisons and other places in the world that are managed by client states or even non-state actors like the the YPG in Syria, because then you can just move people in and out of there far away from prying eyes. It's it's a much more comfortable and common way of the US kind of managing itself around the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. One question we've been asking is what would you like to do? Like are, are there areas that you would like your research to go? You mentioned you'd be interested in getting a little bit more into the sort of legal aspects of this work. So could you just briefly talk about how you might like to pursue that avenue also? Without giving away too much, I am interested in getting more involved in litigation as I move forward in my career. Obviously, uh, you know, having tenure helps and I'm not there yet. So <laughs> all of this is kind of pending some big decisions in the upper reaches of the administration. But generally, all of the things that I write about in my research are also things that I'm interested in in materially affecting and changing in the world. There are a number of, of laws that need to be challenged, especially terrorism laws in the United States that have severe implications for First Amendment rights and First Amendment protections. So there's, it's no secret that a lot of the terrorism laws in the United States have been widely criticized for being super broad. 
and criminalizing all sorts of associational behavior. So that's something that I'm, that I'm very interested in working on. I'm also just, you know, e- even now in my spare time, I volunteer for abolitionist bail funds in Chicago. So that is my involvement there is much more limited. But, you know, as an attorney, I, I do intake and, and try to support folks who, who are being bailed out of Cook County Jail. And that's something else that I'm interested in. Although the landscape in Illinois is shifting because through the incredible organizing efforts of many different groups, Illinois is supposed to be phasing out cash bail. That's very promising. And there are broader kind of decarceral movements that are afoot that I'm interested in in supporting and engaging with in any way that I can. Awesome. Okay, so we, we've, we've covered a lot here and I appreciate your honesty about a lot of the, the aspects of the job that can be frustrating. But our last question is just, what do you find fulfilling about your current role? Well, I think the the thing that motivates many of us in this job is, of course, students and watching students not only engage and do well, but also exceed you, I think is something that's that's really, really rewarding. Mm-hmm. I have to say teaching undergraduates at the University of Chicago has really been a pleasure and highlight of my career. I enjoy it greatly. Our grad students are also amazing. And I, I've just really, I've been very fortunate in terms of the graduate students I've had the opportunity to work with. I would say to mentor, but I think even that is a bit overstating the case. I really <laughs> think of us as, as colleagues and as co-learners. I've learned immensely from all of the students. It's a bit of a cliche answer, but like I said, it has the additional virtue of not being untrue. And that's a fuel that can that can keep me going really for, for very long distances. You know, the research, of course, itself is also interesting. And I have been immensely fortunate in having the resources and the flexibility to pursue the research projects that I find meaningful. And in that sense, the university has been an immensely supportive environment for that. And that's that's a completely frank and unvarnished kind of take. It's actually shocking how much (laughs) discretion and flexibility is accorded to us sometimes. Yeah, those are the two most obvious things that come to mind. (laughs) Well, I'm really glad to hear that you have had that support and look forward to see where it takes you next. This has been really fascinating. Professor Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.